Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, we've got a jam-packed show for you today. First, there's some breaking news about chronic wasting disease found in deer living in this part of the country. That'll be followed by a story about a beluga whale that was recently found in Norway that could have been trained for espionage. Then following that, Dr. Trent Garrison is back telling us about a survey he and a student have recently completed about the attitude among geoscientists in Kentucky on the role of fossil fuel consumption in causing climate change. Then we'll finish the show with some sound clips that were recently broadcast from the surface of Mars. Do you know what a Mars quake sounds like? Well, we'll play it for you. Dr. Leslie Moise finishes the show with a lovely poem about this Martian rumbling. But first, the latest news. Hey, you've heard of mad cow disease in cattle or scrapie in sheep, haven't you? Well, a similar disease called chronic wasting disease can also occur in deer and chronic wasting disease in deer is getting closer and closer to Kentucky. Ten white-tailed deer were recently found in southern Tennessee to have been infected with the transmittable prions that are similar to bad cow disease and scrapie. Chronic wasting disease is sometimes called the zombie disease because it affects the neurological system of the animal. It leads to weight loss, stumbling, listlessness, drooling, lack of fear that's caused by brain lesions, and eventually it leads to death of the animal. Chronic wasting disease is caused by prions that are abnormally shaped proteins in the brain, and they can occur in the spinal column. And what they do is they cause other proteins in those cells to change their shape. Eventually, affected cells burst open, leaving behind these empty spaces that give the brain sort of a spongy look. They call that spongiform. Now, there aren't any known cases of chronic wasting disease in deer that have spread to people who've eaten the meat. But health department officials and the Federal Center for Disease Control warns against taking your chance on that. And you definitely shouldn't be consuming the brain spinal cord, the eyes, spleen, tonsils, lymph nodes of diseased deer, because that's where the prions are harbored. Also, animals infected with chronic wasting disease are susceptible to other diseases as well. So the CDC recommends that hunters test every deer they kill before eating the meat. If that animal was in one of the affected areas, or if the animal was showing the symptoms I mentioned previously, like weight loss, lack of coordination, listlessness, or lack of fear. I recently ran across this quote by Michael Osterholm, who's director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at my alma mater, University of Minnesota. Osterholm said, quote, 
it is probable that human cases of chronic wasting disease associated with the consumption of contaminated meat will be documented in the years ahead. He says it's possible the number of human cases will be substantial and will not be isolated events. Recently, the Center for Disease Control announced that almost half of U.S. states have reported this disease in its deer, elk, moose, caribou, or reindeer. Now, so far, there are no reports of chronic wasting disease in Kentucky deer, but as a precaution against the disease spreading into Kentucky, the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife recently banned the transport of any deer or elk into the Commonwealth unless their brain and spinal cord has been removed. So, there's a lot of innocent eaters out there, and I just wanted you to know about this. Did you hear the story about the beluga whale that was found by people out fishing in northern Norway a few weeks ago, back around the end of April 2019? They noticed that this whale was being extremely friendly and tame to the fishing boat. In fact, they could easily reach down and pet the whale, pet it on its nose. They have since observed that the whale follows boats. It comes when it's called and retrieves plastic rings that are thrown into the water. So it was a little weird to see such a tame beluga in this isolated Norwegian harbor. But what really makes it strange is that the whale had a harness attached around its waist. And this harness had a camera attached to it, sort of like a GoPro camera. And the camera had the words Equipment St. Petersburg printed on it in English. So the thought is, is that the Russians were using this whale as some sort of a spy But why was it living in this little harbor of a Norwegian hamlet that only contains like a dozen permanent residents? Maybe there's a hundred people there in the summer. Is this a trained whale that escaped from Russian hands? After all, there is a big Russian Navy base in Murmansk, Russia, which is about 300 miles away from this fishing village. Now, Russian authorities have not made any comment about this whale, except to say that they really don't work much with belugas. And then the Russian response was, since that tag was printed in English, maybe this whale escaped from St. Petersburg, Florida, even though St. Petersburg is something like 4,700 miles away from Norway. Now, both the Russian and the U.S. militaries have been known to train marine mammals. We're talking dolphins, sea lions, and whales for doing things like looking for enemy divers, identifying underwater mines, and helping on underwater recovery operations of things like unexploded torpedoes. So, for instance, dolphins were deployed by the Pentagon in 2003 during the war in Iraq to look for underwater bombs. And no, there is no evidence that there have ever been bombs attached to these marine animals. I don't think they do that. Now, the favorite animal for marine spying, though, is the dolphin, Dolphins produce sonar energy from their foreheads. This is a type of sound wave that radiates outward from the head of the animal. It's really just a series of clicks produced by passing air through this long tube or a sac that's in the forehead of the animal. Dolphins have a fat-rich lens in the forehead, which helps focus the sound away from the animal. And that's why dolphins and belugas have these really large, bulbous foreheads. 
these sonar clicks that these toothed whales can make. So we're talking about dolphins, porpoises, sperm whales, killer whales, and beluga whales bounce off and return to the animal. And then they're able to detect that returning sonar signal with its two ears. And apparently its teeth have something to do with receiving this signal. Having two ears as sonar receivers allow it to determine things like the shape, the size, the density, the speed, the distance of the objects that the sonar bounces off. This is called echolocation. Echolocation. And it's the same thing that's done by bats, nocturnal birds like the oil birds and the swiftlets, and some terrestrial mammals like shrews and rats. In fact, that word sonar was coined by the Navy. It's basically an acronym for Sound Navigation Ranging. S-O-N-A-R, sonar. Sonar is especially good to be used underwater because the sound waves at the frequency they're at, the sound waves travel 4.5 times faster in water than through the air. And biological sonar is much better than mechanical sonar equipment that's used in submarines and things like that. So the sonar produced by tooth whales, dolphins, porpoises, killer whales, belugas, they're really good. Another advantage is that these animals can dive really deep into the ocean. They can go much deeper and faster than human swimmers can or robots. Now, people can direct the dolphins using sound-generating transducers that can be attached to the body of the animal. And so you train the animal to respond a certain way when they hear a certain sound coming out of that transducer. So they have to train the animal to do specific tasks. Well, to update you, since it's been a couple of weeks since this beluga whale was first sighted, I can tell you the villagers are enjoying the company of the whale. They're in the process of naming him. Some of the popular names are Snow White, Agent James Beluga, and White Russian. But apparently the winning name is Valdemir, because Val is Norwegian for whale, but it also sounds a lot like Vladimir, Putin. Apparently, Valdemir is not being charged with espionage, but Norwegian marine biologists are now worried about the ability of the whale to feed itself, and they feel that the whale needs to be moved to a facility somewhere. But it turns out that Norway really doesn't have the means to take care of a beluga whale. So now there is talk of delivering the animal to the nearest marine animal care facility, and guess where that is? Russia. (laughs) Well, hey guys, I'm really happy to be here again. It's been a while since I've been on the show. So I wanted to give you an update on some work that a student and and I have done. The student's Andrea Marquin of Northern Kentucky University. She was in my class last semester. I I taught a class on science and policy, and she was interested in doing a study, a statewide study in the geoscience community called Climate Change Attitudes in the Geosciences at Kentucky Universities. So basically, what we wanted to do was poll every geoscientist, full-time professor geoscientist we could find in the state. They don't have to be at the rank of professor, but anyone who's full-time at a university in the geosciences. So what we found was that there are 41 full-time geoscience faculty at all the Kentucky universities that focus on that sort of thing. And we sent them all a survey, and we asked all of them, which statement best fits your view on climate change? And we gave them three choices. And the choices were, without reading them in great detail here, basically climate, the first option was climate change is occurring. Human consumption of fossil fuels is mostly to blame for the increase that we've seen in the last 100, 150 years. The second option is climate change is occurring. 
but humans' consumption of fossil fuels is somewhat, in other words, less than 50% to blame for the increase that we've seen in the last 100, 150 years. And the third option is anthropogenic climate change is not at all occurring. So as I said, the response rate was 61%, 25 of 41 people. 100% of them said that anthropogenic climate change is occurring. When you, break, when you further break that down, 92% explicitly stated that human consumption of fossil fuels is mostly to blame, greater than 50%, in other words, to blame. 4% said that human consumption is somewhat to blame, and 4% gave a suggestion that the question should be reworded, but they agreed that anthropogenic climate change is occurring and is greater than 50% to blame. So, this study is similar to what other people who have done similar studies have found in polls over the last 10 or 15 years. In our study, we referenced seven of the most common polls, or large-scale studies that looked at thousands of papers. One of the most well-known ones, I suppose, is the Cook et al. study, in which 97%, a little over 97%, of people in the scientific community who had studied global climate change agreed that anthropogenic climate change is occurring. There were several others, Doran, Carlton, and, and a host of others. And those numbers ranged from 91% to 100% agreement that anthropogenic climate change is occurring. So that's just a, a quick update on some work we had done. I thought it was really interesting. As far as I know, this is the first study of its kind to ever be done in the state of Kentucky, where we specifically looked at our geographic region in the geosciences particularly, and polled all of the all that we could contact at least all of the people in the in the state in the geoscience community to gather their thoughts on climate change anthropogenic climate change so happy to be on again if you have any questions let me know otherwise i look forward to the next program thanks a lot hey if you caught our new year's eve show last december 31st you might have heard us talking about the insight spacecraft that successfully landed on the surface of Mars last November. Well, now that the dust has settled a little bit on this spacecraft, I mean that literally because the cameras of the spacecraft were covered with dust immediately after the landing. Well, now that the dust has settled, they're beginning to collect data from the InSight spacecraft. I was fortunate enough to watch the Mars landing live and can tell you that it was a very emotional experience. The craft is now sitting on a flat, dirty plain situated very close to the Martian equator. They didn't want a lot of mountains or valleys around the spacecraft. They didn't want a lot of rocks. One of the reasons they picked this spot was because they wanted to drill into the ground. They're going to drill 16 feet down into the soil to measure the planet's temperature. Experts suggest that the inner temperature of Mars is cooler than the Earth's temperature. Once established, they're planning on collecting this temperature data for the entire two-year period that this mission is planned to last. Secondly, the Mars InSight robot is going to be tracking the north pole of the planet and see how much it wobbles due to the pull of the sun during the year. It takes Earth 18 years to complete one wobble, but it's suspected that that's going to be quicker on Mars. This will reveal things about the iron-rich inner core of the planet like how much iron is in there, and whether it's a liquid or a solid. They also want to measure the seismic activity on Mars. This could be caused by the impact of meteorites on the planet, or it could be due to the contraction of the rocks due to temperature changing, causing Mars quakes. 
Insight will measure the number of Mars quakes, how big they are, how often they occur, and where. It's got sophisticated equipment to eliminate the effect of wind and dust storms. And eventually, the seismic data they collect might reveal more about the volcanic activity on Mars or the possibility of liquid water beneath the surface. Well, on April 6, 2019, the InSight lander actually detected a faint seismic signal on Mars. NASA scientists are pretty sure the vibration was coming from the inside of the planet, so they're pretty sure that the noise they detected was not caused by wind or a meteorite striking the surface or something like that. But they are still analyzing this data. Now, Mars doesn't have as much seismic activity as we have here on Earth. Apparently, our planet is constantly quivering due to not just earthquakes, but the vibrations caused by the pressure and flow of the oceans, our complicated weather systems. But for the InSight, they had to design an extremely sensitive seismometer to detect the very faint rumbles that might be occurring on Mars. So the event that they did measure on Mars in April is tiny compared to the dozens of seismic crackles that are detected in Southern California every day. So it wasn't until late December before InSight even deployed its seismograph. A robotic arm lifted the copper-colored six-sided box as far away from the landing craft as it could, which was five feet, four inches. Then they had to make sure the instrument was perfectly level on the ground. Then they had to ensure that the wire connecting it to the landing craft was situated in such a way that the vibrations on the spacecraft wouldn't interfere with the recordings. And then finally they had to place a large insulated shield over the seismograph to reduce interference from wind and temperature changes. Now this whole thing was an international effort. French scientists are the ones who designed and built the seismometer, and Swiss scientists are responsible for measuring the actual seismic events. Other countries involved on this project include Germany, the UK, Poland, and Spain. According to the principal investigator on the InSight mission, his name is Bruce Barnett, he's located at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, he says, quote, the seismometer is the highest priority instrument on InSight. We need it in order to complete about three quarters of our science objectives. And the NASA press release says that, quote, each Mars quake acts as a kind of flashbulb that illuminates the structure of the planet's interior. By analyzing how seismic waves pass through the layers of the planet, scientists can deduce the depth and composition of these layers. Having this seismometer on the ground is like holding a phone up to your ear, unquote. Now, this is not the first time that we have placed seismometers on other planetary bodies. The various Apollo missions that occurred between 1969 and 1977, the Apollo missions, they placed five different seismometers on the moon, in order to measure moonquakes. By the way, speaking of Apollo, on July 20th this summer, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first time humans landed on the moon, Apollo 11. Anyway, this particular Mars quake that I'm telling you about now is pretty much in line with what has been measured by these older sensors on the moon. The quakes on the moon are of similar size and duration as this Mars quake. 
Now, neither the moon nor Mars has tectonic plates like we have here on Earth, which is why the quakes are not as numerous or as large as on Earth as they are on the moon or Mars. On Mars, the quakes are thought to be due to unequal cooling and contraction of the Martian rock. The stress due to temperature changes builds up and causes the Mars crust to break, and that causes quake-like vibrations. In a minute, I'm going to play the recording of the Mars quake, but I want to tell you that this was not the first quake that was detected on Mars. There was one before, and there were two quakes after this one, but they were smaller than this one that NASA has decided to release to the public to hear. There are three parts to the 40-second sound clip that NASA has provided the public. First, there is the sound of the Martian wind, then the actual Mars quake, and then there's the sound of a robotic arm on the InSight lander moving. Apparently, the lander was repositioning a camera when this quake happened, so the sound is in there. Now, these sounds you're going to hear are not exactly what you would have heard if you had been on Mars at the time. The vibrations were so slight that we actually wouldn't have been able to hear much of anything in real time. This recording has been sped up by a factor of 60, so it actually occurred much more quietly and subtly than reflected in this recording. Now, NASA only released one recording from the InSight lander, but it's actually divided up into three parts. The first, you hear the Martian wind, and then you hear the Mars quake, and then you hear the sound of the robotic arm. I don't know if they actually all occurred at the same time on Mars or not. NASA doesn't really seem to say. But for your benefit, so you could focus on one thing at a time, I cut it into three pieces. The first piece is about 13 seconds long, and it's a recording of what the wind on Mars sounds like from the InSight lander. NASA actually recommends that the listeners wear headphones to hear it properly, but since most of you are in your cars or at home or on your computer, I'll just suggest you turn up the volume on your radio or your speakers. And I will play this clip twice because I think the first time you'll just have to get oriented and then I'll play it again. Don't forget, these sounds have been sped up by 60-fold. Let's play that sound of the wind again. Now that was the sound of wind on Mars. This next sound clip is the actual Mars quake. It's about 12 seconds long. I'll repeat this too in case you miss it the first time. How cool. Let's hear that Mars quake again. So that was the sound of the Mars quake. And then the final sound clip is the robotic arm that is moving the camera that's on the InSight lander. It's about 16 seconds long. 
Here's the sound of that robotic arm again. That was a robotic arm on the Insight Lander. <laughs> Pretty cool. So this event indicates that quakes really do occur on Mars. So now scientists have a couple years to record even more, compare them to each other, and start analyzing them. It's exciting that we can all share in this recording from a planet that is millions of miles away and so different from us. To commemorate this wondrous event, Louisville poet Leslie Moise has honored us with a poem written specifically for this delightful astronomical event. You might have heard Dr. Moise's previous contribution on Bench Talk the Week in Science. It was back in February of 2019 when she read her haunting poem about the American beech tree, which is being hit by an infectious disease now. Check out our February 11th, 2019 episode to find out more about the beech tree and hear her poem. But now here is Leslie Moise's poem about the Mars quake. Mars quakes. The low shudder of the planet's surface captured by NASA. Seismic activity subtle as breeze and earth trees. Discovery. The red planet moves not just through space, but within itself. Thrilling. Even if recordings by insight required 60 times amplification for us to hear. I wonder where the quake occurred. In the southern highlands? Northern plains? Personally, I hope it happened on the Tharsis Plateau. Tharsis. The exotic name captures my imagination. But that's just me, lulled by the allure of language. Mars lacks Earth's abundance of tectonic plates. The brick-colored surface of our neighboring planet boasts a still fiery core, one that chimneys, quivers, and trembles, that vibrates the scarlet surface. The quake only registered 2.5 on the Richter. So gentle, we wouldn't feel it, even if we stood right next to Insight. Not even though it lasted 15 minutes. But oh, the tingle of listening to it, from 33.9 million miles and 300 days away. Thanks to Dr. Moise for this poem. Leslie Moise, that's spelled M-O-I-S-E, is a local author and teacher who's published three books, a novel, a memoir, and a book of poetry. And even though Dr. Moise is busy working on a couple of other important books right now, I'm Glad that she found herself awestruck enough by this event to honor us with this poem. Thanks, Leslie. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook, you can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org. 
and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>